one thing is to remember the moments when you knew it was right you know because there's definitely times when you when everything kind of clicks and even in your deep inside you you know that you got it right and that you're on the right path this is the Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Sam Fell was always drawn to creation, and in the 1980s, he found himself in London, studying fine art and making interdisciplinary works of art junk sculptures with speakers and cassette tapes inside, eventually even adding mechanics to move his works. It was around this time that he rediscovered stop-motion animation and the works of the Quay Brothers and the Yanks Venkmeyer. Sam taught himself stop-motion and eventually found himself making the track from London to Bristol to the home of Artman Animations. He felt at home there, at the artist-driven studio, where he continued to hone his craft and storytelling beside Peter Lord, before embarking on his career as a director. In our conversation, Sam shares his road to the director's chair, from his early days as a directionalist teen in London, to working with Peter Lord and the early years of Aardman, to his move to CG and the blending of tech and tradition that has led to his latest feature film, Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget. Here's our conversation with Sam Fell. I wanted to start with something like before we talk about the movie, I wanted to talk a little bit about your career because that's the the show is really a celebration of your work leading up to the new release. So I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about when you first fell in love with animation, like where did that come from? I guess it happened like twice. The first time kind of very young without any kind of focus on career. I mean I grew up in the UK in the 70s and there was just a lot of great animation on the TV then. Kid stuff. There was a guy called Oliver Postgate uh, who made these beautiful stop motion films for kids. But Bagpuss was amazing. This beautiful film about these old toys coming to life. A series which I adored. It was so magical. Um, There was um, the Clangers, which were like these knitted space aliens that lived on this moon with a a soup dragon. And they spoke with a kind of a whistly voice. So there was, it was just mime with these weird voices. Um, Then there was Trumpton, Campbellwick Green. I mean, there were a lot and they were really magical and I fell in so I, as a kid I just loved watching those ones especially and there were 2D there was 2D as well a thing called Rhubarb which was Bob Godfrey who's a you know he was like a early kind of real sort of classic British animator yeah. guy in the 60s and 70s so yeah my childhood definitely I sort of was watching stuff that I loved and then even like Monty Python like Terry Gilliam's little pieces were in the the Monty Python shows and we watched the Monty Python show as a family in the 70s so all of that and then like later so I wasn't very I don't come from an artistic family um but I was drawn to art somehow something made me want to do art I didn't even know what it would be uh, so I, against my parents' wishes, actually, I left I left home to go pursue art. Um, and I didn't even go to college at first. I just went to London 
and we were in a, I was in a band and hanging around with a bunch of sort of arty kind of people with no direction whatsoever completely blundering around and then eventually I did fine art a fine art degree I did a foundation and then a fine art degree and I couldn't really draw and computers were very rare and I, they were around, but I didn't really like using them. I didn't. I wasn't drawn to computers or computer games or anything. But I did like making things out of junk, like so, making junk sculptures and like constructing objects, you know, using objects and textures. And and then I, so I, in my fine art degree in the eighties, I started um, making these junk sculptures, but then adding sound, like burying like sounds inside them with speakers and, and cassette tape. And then I started adding mechanics. So started to make the sculptures move and make noises. And, um, and then around that time on the TV, latest pre-internet, so there were four channels on the, on the, in the UK, the newest channel, Channel 4, there was a, an editor there that really was championing animation unlike world animation. So if you stayed up late enough, you could see like Jan Schwenkmeyer, the Czech stop motion animator, like, you know, his dimensions of dialogue or at, at, they showed Alice, uh, his feature film, which is like astonishing. And like, you know, like the way he would just take humble objects, like his caterpillar in Alice is a sock with a pair of false teeth in it. And it's sitting on a little um, um, sort of a crochet kind of wooden crochet tool, yeah. and it was and it's just like inanimate objects coming to life again, just like what I watched as a kid, I guess you know. And the Brothers Quay was the other one, like Street of Crocodiles. Yeah. It's just amazing piece of film, you know. All but again, like scissors and found objects, beautiful lighting, texture, photography. So it was like, I was like, oh, wow, stop motion, you know, I've got to learn. I've got to teach myself how to do that. So, yeah. So that's what I did next because I was at this fine art college and, it, and then in the 80s, there was like, you know, neo-expressionism was big in painting. So there's like Basquiat and David Sal and, you know, um, I'm blanking on the names again, you know, the guy with the plates, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, um, but big painting was in. And no one was interested in film. And there was this film equipment left over from the 60s when they used to make experimental film. And I was like, is anyone using that stuff? And they were like, no, you can you know, you help yourself. So I grabbed it. And then I had a, a really cheap place with a big basement space. And so I just took all the equipment back to this place. And I just taught myself how to make sets, how to build little armatures, how to make puppets, how to animate, how to light, how to edit. And so I kind of started making these uh, short films that were like more influenced by the Quay brothers, I guess. Yeah. So they weren't, they didn't really make sense. They were kind of, uh, you know, quite surreal, just experiments really, you know. When you were going through that process of teaching yourself stop motion, did you search out like a community? Because I'm assuming that there were other filmmakers or people working in that space. No, there wasn't really, no. There wasn't really anyone. I knew about Ardman, of course, who were in Bristol. And I was up in Nottingham in the Midlands. It's not that far away, but it was, I, I hadn't connected with Ardman at that point. And, you know, they were doing Creature Comforts and the Sledgehammer Pop pop video so they were in their sort of sort of first phase early days and um you know successful and you know love creature comforts and but it was 
No, I just burrowed away on my own, you know, and I think in a way animators are kind of quite introverted, you know, that's kind of why we do what we do, because we, you know, you can kind of get on with it yourself without kind of having to. So no, I, I, I was, you know, I had friends in the, in the art college who were doing painting and film, and, you know, other kinds of film and stuff, photography. But uh, no, I just... But I didn't really know what I was doing. That was the weird thing. I think it would have gone a lot quicker if I'd have <laughs> got in touch with someone because there was no internet. There's no information. There were no books. So you could sort of tell by, you know, if you watched the Quay Brothers, you could sort of see the ball joints because they showed, that you could sort of see in their film how they were made and you could guess. Yeah, so I just uh, got going. Like my first set had four walls. And I was like, ah, oh, wow, how do you get the camera in here? I wonder how that works. <laughs> so then I had to like, oh, right, yeah, I need to chop a wall away to get the camera in. So I was that, I was that dumb. Well, no, I mean, I don't think it's being dumb. It's being, it's a little bit of naive, naivety. Yeah, it's just complete naivety, yeah. But it's amazing because, I mean, you're at a point there where you're just experimenting with things. And that's sometimes when you stumble upon the best stuff. It's the best stuff. And I think, you know, I identify with Nick Park and Peter Lord because they all started that way, you know. Like, they all started very simply with just some, a few materials and sort of got going. And it was all handmade and homemade and, you know, like Nick's first uh, Wallace and Gromit was all ho really homemade, you know, like he made all the props and he filmed it himself. And, you know, I think he had a bit of help uh, from around in the end, he did. But he started off just like, oh, OK, well, let's just let's just make it. Yeah, and you don't start off thinking you're going to get a career out of it, to be honest. You don't start off thinking I'm going to get make any money out of this or anything. You just you're just fascinated by the thing. So you know? did you have a plan at that point? I mean, you're in college, you're <laughs> playing with these things, you're not sure if this is going to be a career. Yeah. Was there like a backup plan? No backup plan. No, I was completely mad, completely sort of quite wild as a teenager, you know, and in my 20s, I just jumped, I just had some weird faith that things would work out. So I just jumped, would always just go with what felt right and pursue what was interesting the, at the end of the fine art degree like I think for all, all of the students me included it was a little bit of a wake-up call because it's such an un, it's such a wonderful thing to study but like for a lot of people they would made these giant paintings or these mad sculptures or these weird f films in my case and um, there's not a direct much of a career path laid out for you coming out of a fine art degree at that time I don't think there is I don't know if there is now it's not about that it was about ex the experience so so yeah it was a bit like oh right better now what, now what? yeah we better kind of like th and I wanted to be more focused by then because I'd been out of you know it took me probably six years to find this path you know to be on it um at this point so I was like oh, okay what do I do next? And something popped up, though. It was a competition uh, to pitch uh, a film idea. And if you won the competition, then you would get uh, some money. It was from Channel 4 again. Uh, this um, wonderful editor, Claire Kitt, had found this pot of money. And so she that was the offer. So I pitched... Um, it was a horror movie about the three blind mice. So you know the nursery rhyme? Yeah. And that had always sort of haunted me ever since I was a young child, that nursery rhyme, three blind mice that cut off their tails with a carving knife. It's really macabre. It's really dark. Really dark. Well, but I and mean, a lot of those old fairy tales yeah, and, and stories are really yeah, dark. Yeah, they are. And I love. I still love fairy tales. I still I think they should, we should 
cherished them really but yeah so it was, and I loved you know Sam Raimi at the time he'd done Evil Dead 2 and Evil yeah. Dead 2 was my favourite still is one of my favourite films actually it's pretty so funny and, yeah, and funny dark. and dark and like kinetic so yeah my that was my pitch and on the judging panel was Dave Sproxton who was one of the founders of Ardman and they you know won the pro- the prize so I got the money to develop the the, the film and eventually the development went well and I got to make the film like they gave me the budget to make the film um and the film turned out okay you know good enough you know and it was again like I had a smaller crew I had a camera person help then and an editor and some sound so I had a bit more of a team but uh it turned out turned out fine and then Armin were like come on down you know because you know you're obviously one of us really you know and it's just it is that group of oddballs stop motion certainly in the early 90s it was I mean Armin wasn't that big by that point you know it's probably sort of 20 20 30 people down in Bristol and so I got to go in there quite early Nick Nick hadn't Nick had just started shooting the wrong trousers and um so I just came in and became an assistant to Peter Lord and uh, did background characters for him and made props. So, and started getting paid, you know, like, you know, you could actually, it was just amazing to get paid for what you do, what you liked, this weird thing that you oddly was drawn to. So, yeah, I, um, yeah, just started doing background characters for him and making little props and figuring out little tricks, you know, little, you know, like a flying air, little paper planes and little flying things and little gizmos, bits of rigging. And um, yeah, so he was sort of my mentor, really, became my mentor. And how long were you there before you pitched Flushed Away? So it's about 10, probably, you know, it, it adds up to about 10 years, really, you know, that time to grow. Uh, from ba- you know, really the assistant through being an animator, then I started being able to animate fully, uh, and I animated for him. Uh, like he did a short film called What's Pig, which um, is a split screen film, and I animated one half and he animated the other. Oh wow! So and we were matching the animation and then the story. It's a nice film actually. It's really clever the way he designed it. And we got nominated for an Oscar for that, which was like, you know, great. And then I started directing. That's that's the path they had there. That's the way Arben worked was that you would be a sort of director animator. So you like Peter, you know, he directed and animated his own commercials and his own short films. Mm-hmm. And so did Jeff Newitt. So did Nick. So did uh, Richard Golajowski. There was a that was the pattern. So you would make money for the studio on commercials and then you, with the money you could find time to make your short film That's and it fed itself, you know, and they made a lot of good good shorts, you know, in that way. And there's little bits of money from, you know, other bits of funding. So, yeah, I became a director animator um, and then 97 they were a pitched Chicken Run and DreamWorks came on board and they were off to the races on in their feet their feature ambition which was massive i um, was offered to go on to the project but i uh, opted to stay behind in commercials because that needed to carry on by then i was happier directing as well as animating and there was a nice group of people there all similar age similar experience so we got to be the arms commercials department while the main crew went to do 
chicken run. And then, but all during that time, I was already, I was sort of, I was all, I love telling stories and I love making up stories and thinking of stories. And so I already, while they were making that, I kept thinking of uh, feature ideas and just pitching them in and series ideas and just any, you know, I was always sort of like knocking on the door of their development people and saying, well, how about, you know, a, a pirate story or a, this story or that story. And so around about as they were finishing as they were getting to the end of Chicken Run, I had pitched uh, the rat being flushed down his own toilet, uh, which was kind of based on Sullivan's Travels. Okay. Yeah, and also The African Queen, because I love the Afri- I love old movies, actually. I really love that golden Hollywood period, you know. I mean, it's 30s to 50s. Yeah. And there's so many brilliant films, really beautifully told, but very efficiently told, not not relying on spectacle necessarily but just good stories good ideas for characters and yeah the idea of an old gnarly boat captain and a sort of posh uh passenger and you know but that was flipped and flushed away yeah and uh and i liked the idea of a rich guy in sullivan's travels this rich guy being chucked out into the depression era you know having to cope you know so so yeah, I pitched it and then I developed it and I had the kind of storyline and um, just right place, right time, you know, because it got to the end of Chicken Run and Jeffrey was like, well, where's, where's, the, where's your slate? And they were like, oh, uh, slate? <laughs> Here, look, Hold here's, on, uh, here's we Sam. have some stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's Sam. <laughs> and That's it not was so fun. bad. No, it was cool. And like Jeffrey liked those films, you know, Jeffrey's a fan of the African Queen and, you know, Sullivan's Travels, you know, he knows his stuff, you know, and he was like, yeah, I can see that, you know. That's yeah. amazing. So now all of a sudden you're working on commercials and you're handed this opportunity to make this feature film. How was that different from working on the smaller projects? Well, it was strange because like at first it was like, I didn't really know whether I was going to go with it because mm-hmm. it's a, such a big leap up and I never, uh, you know, I was confident in myself, but I, was, I don't know. I mean, I've always, I always just take a chance and see what happens. So I guess I was just doing that again. But Jeffrey liked the project, and Pete Lord had always been my, you know, my. I'm so glad I met him, really, you know, because I wouldn't be here. But he was like, Sam can direct this. And they figured out that, you know, not on his own, of course, and then paired me with David Bowers, who's a Brit um, and had storyboarded on Chicken Run and was. If you look at DreamWorks, the early days of DreamWorks, actually, there was a. a DreamWorks was created a lot from what was Amblin, which was a 2D outfit in London, who did Roger Rabbit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all under the Richard Williams kind of world. So there's a load of Brits and Europeans that went from London. They're almost like the founding fathers and yeah. mothers so on the Mayflower. They all went in a big group over to California to, to become DreamWorks. And so David was one of those guys. So I got on with him and they paired paired us up together and we kind of set off and um, and it was really weird. I mean, my wife was pregnant and she was with our, you know, our boy and um, very pregnant, in fact, you know. And then and it was like, well, are you going or not? Because I'll tell you, I'll wind back a little bit. We actually were trying to pitch it as a stop motion film. So the intention was to make Flushed Away in stop motion in Bristol. But the... Um, the scale of a rat city under London was huge. And um, we had some great concept art done by uh, this guy, Pierre Oliver Vincent from DreamWise, French guy, amazing. 
but he did these brilliant massive bits of concept art of a rat city that were like we can't build that yeah yeah we can't build that they said yeah 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 and it's funny because i think now that there's more of a hybrid going on with stop motion and like what we've done with chicken run down the nugget you i think you could now actually do that kind of thing but at the time it was like it hadn't no one had really pulled it off so it was you know better to just go full cg so uh, yeah i said to fran do you want to go you know because i want to go but you you know and she was fine you know and then you know for us it was just our next adventure it was an amazing adventure and like california is so sunny and lovely and all the people at dreamworks were so nice and Arbman has such a good respect you know everyone has respect for Arbman. so if you're from Arbman, then you know you yeah they treated us really nicely yeah and like it wasn't it was daunting um and it was a lot of work but um it's such an amazing team of people and they were so enthusiastic about the idea that I've got to say it was a great experience, yeah. So, I mean, you, and then you went on to make the Teledust Pro, so you do two movies in a row that are CG. How did those experiences and working in the CG realm affect how you tackled your next stop motion project? Yeah, it was a really odd thing because I hadn't thought that, oh, I'm a CG guy now, you know, but uh, I mean, honestly, it was just the way the business was going because of, you know, Toy Story broke such new ground and Mm -hmm. CG was really hot, you know, it was like the hot thing to do, you know, Uh, so I guess there was more projects that done that way. Um, But the really, the odd thing was going back to stop motion at Leica was that I was a little bit like a kind of Rip Van Winkle guy from coming from, it's like I'd been away from stop motion for so long. When I came back to it, I was amazed by it because it had changed so much, you know, not the, not the basic thing, which is still as old as the hills, you know, animating a puppet frame by frame and never changes. But Leica especially had figured out how to the whole hybrid thing and it had started with Coraline and Henry Selix you know he's a very visionary you know guy and you know they'd already figured out printing 3d printing faces and using special effects and mixing you know compositing and you know digital effects and so they were ready to do more you know so all of the things that I thought were too expensive and beyond reach when we who were pitching flushed away were were now like you know quite possible you know like, and that wasn't even that many years apart no no it's really not I think it just took someone to kind of like prove it and we were still proving it in paranormal you know we were we, we still had more to kind of prove but there was a, a confidence at Leica and Travis is a great leader actually I mean he's really great you know he loves stop motion and he's got the confidence to back it and try new things and so we need we were the first people to use a color 3d printer uh and it didn't really work that well in our tests and we but we were like now let's do it and it it sort of doesn't register perfectly and it jitters a little bit but i quite i actually quite like that in the film yeah it was suddenly like all of these sort of this hybrid type stop motion was there so all of the things that used to be really difficult like in my day, in the 90s, it was hard to remove a rig even, you know, so we were always like hanging things on fishing wires and trying to like paint the wires out in camera with a Sharpie or like flag off little bits of light catching wires. And uh, it was all trying to do in cam- pure in camera. But like now you could, yeah, they could have things on rigs and remove them. They could like drop in different skies. They could come 
you know, combine different scales, add, they could do crowds, you know, and like crowd characters in CG back for the background. And it was like amazing. It was like so good. It was like the best of best of everything then, you know, because I really love stop motion, you know, especially the lighting, you know, like I really love stop motion lighting. It's something, it's so real. Mm. I mean, it is real. It's photography, right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because yeah. it's real light hitting a real, yeah, real object. Thing, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's like the depth of field and all of the, you know, and things you can do it in CG, but there's something nice about being on sets and with it's real things. Yeah, I love all that, yeah. The only thing that I'd found early on I had to get used to again was the um, fact that the animation is very uh, straight through and very and very hard to redo and very hard to edit. So actually very early in the beginning, like a shot would come in and I would be like, just in my gut, I'd be like, right, I want to change this, retime that, move that over there, change this pose, you know. Which, and as I was saying it, I was, I was really basically saying we need to start again. But in my, I'm so used to uh, directing CG animation, you know, you don't. You're just like, duh, 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 duh. yeah, change, 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 change. And everybody's looking at you like, oh, yeah. well, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you mean, yeah, Dan? Yeah, the room went really quiet. Yeah, yeah. I was like, <laughs> you know, saying all this, and then uh, and I realized I was everyone was kind of looking at me, and I was like, oh boy, oh yeah, right. This is actually a really big. deal to kind of be asking for these changes and that woke me up they did wake me up yeah and it's a big difference in stop motion that that to the the that mindset of like really committing to a performance like before they start and like knowing that that's that it's it is a performance it's like being it's a one-off moment being captured in time you know it's not some editable you know, thing, you know, digital thing. Yeah. So that's, yeah, the limitations come back, but they're not necessarily bad. All film is a collaborative effort, whether you're working in live action or animation. And even if it's CG or 2D animation, every artist has their own sort of touch. And with stop motion, it's the same thing. You have your work, you have, you know, a number of animators working on shots, often using same characters. How do you kind of give people the opportunity to be creative, but still also, you know, be part of the team and making sure that you have a vision that's yeah. cohesive throughout? It's an interesting thing, isn't it? That And it's definitely, it's different every time and it's different with different people and you have to be kind of like empathetic with who you're working with and tune into them. Um, I found in the end that, that people want you to be clear and, and committed to what you want uh, and be articulate about, you know, and be, be clear about what you want. Um, because I think being sort of vague and kind of a little bit sort of foggy is, not, is people can't work in that environment, find it hard to work with that, you know, because they don't quite know what you want because they're coming to work with you. Uh, so they want to know where the edges are and the parameters. I personally like to be very organized uh, in the preparation of the film. Um, I like to kind of be clear on the script, like what we're doing, um, from beginning to end and what the, really the main points of the film are in the script and then I like to really drill into the storyboard in, with the story people and the editor to really define those movie moments and those performances and that pace and that really you know so I, I, 
I like that. So then I go when I by the time I'm shooting with people, I'm kind of it's it's a it's a pretty it's we've tried this and that. We've had our indecisive moments. We've been round the wrong. We've been up the wrong road and back again. And any of that sort of uh, it's a lot. It's pretty clear by then. And then I think that gives you uh, confidence because once you set off with a crew, and once that crew grows and you now you've got 150 people and you're spinning plates and moving quickly around the place all day, every day, you, 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 you don't want to be like trying to like busk it and make it. I don't. I don't want to be like trying to like make it up on the spot, you know, although... But the fact I've got done my prep good and I'm prepared, I, I'm, I have confidence where I, that I know what the shape is. So I then know what details really matter and what don't. And, and so and I, I get on very well with the crew in that way because they appreciate, I think, being given a clear brief. But then I'm also clear on what details matter and what don't. Like, because there's a million details in an animated film, or probably ten million details in an animated <laughs> film, and there's probably just like a hundred thousand that really, or even less, there's probably like a thousand that need to be that really, really need to be defined by the director, and then all the rest can be other people can do their version. You know, animators can do their version of that. That, that scene as long as they're hitting these particular beats because it th threads through the whole story you know they're only they're only working on a bit of the film so yeah it's just understanding what details matter really matter and what details are flexible you know? mm. I love Paranorman it's this lovely mix of it's like a Halloween classic for me yeah, I, oh, I just great, love it yeah. and it's it I think it ties back now knowing that you're sort of a fan of uh, Sam Raimi I'm like okay I can yeah. kind of see the the horror elements in yeah. that, cause that that movie really captures that mm. that feeling yeah it's a lot of it was you know Chris had figured out a lot before I came actually you know like okay. in many ways he's because he wrote it and there's a, there's certain sort of biographical kind of quality to it for him because uh, he was like uh, I mean he's he could only he could only speak for himself really but you know in some ways he's he was that kind of old kid that you know mm. wasn't like a he was, certainly wasn't a jock at school you know and like you know he's probably a bit of an outsider himself you know and so a lot of it he'd figured you know out this great story but he was a horror fan as am i and so that's where we clicked really on that sort of classic zombie movies you know like the george ray george romero um and then yeah raimi and um you know halloween um john carpenter we both loved you know so it's a chance to do that homage to a lot of those things and also kind of small town America and we're both Brits I mean Chris is from Liverpool and like we that era of video yeah. you know video horror was like we you, you know that was always being all being passed around the school was in the UK in the sort of late 70s early 80s you know people were kind of watching stuff they shouldn't be watching I suppose <laughs> yeah. at a younger age <laughs> I think so, that was the case everywhere yeah. as soon as VHS yeah. became and it's thing. all like uh, American stuff yeah. you know like uh, so we grew up kind of having a feel for an American mm -hmm. small town for some reason, even though we didn't grow up like that at all. <laughs> yeah, it was my first kind of American film, you know. It was my only American film, if you like. But it was quite... 
fun and you know felt quite happy doing it you know making this sort of film in this american small town with this these kind of horror themes yeah it was yeah. really good yeah. it's a lot of fun i, I love that yeah. movie a lot the the big thing you've you've now made paranorman they come to you and they're like so hey we have this idea how did this even start this idea of chicken run they so i'd been around in a way and yeah. then i bumped into peter lord at 10 downing street actually which is where the prime minister lives <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's random that's where we it's pretty random because we've never neither of us had ever been there before i don't think you know but there was a, some celebration of the animation industry british animation uh, and so everyone was there and you know sort of bumped into him and uh, he said well, you know we think we've got it now, you know. And I knew they'd been trying to figure it out forever. But he was like, you know, yeah, it's this time they're breaking in. Uh, and then instantly that makes you think, oh, that's fun, you know. It's like a album break-in movie, you know, and you can see the comedy, the little clever props and the, you know, uh, sort of heist tropes, uh, you know, but with chickens, you know, like chicken action heroes, you know, forget Tom Cruise, this is back, now it's Babs. So it just tickled me, really, you know, and so, uh, and, you know, I was looking, wanting to do more, and then, and also I, you know, really do trust and love Ardman, you know, they are sort of family, and I know that they know what a good movie looks like and they're very uh committed to the quality you know so you know if you're going to get involved with them then it's, it's something it's going to turn out well it might take a long time but it's going to turn out well you know so yeah i just jumped in really just on that premise you know so what when was that that was 2017 for me oh wow. yeah 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 and they had a draft it was um, same plot as you can see. It was like the dawn, you know, dawn of fast food. It was industrial farming. It was like they needed to break in. And the thing that they knew, you know, already in that first draft was that chickens don't love money or diamonds particularly. You know, it doesn't mean anything to them. So it needed to be one of their kind. You know, a, a character that they loved. You know, something meaningful that they needed to break in for. And in that first draft, it was Ginger actually. You know, she would she had been taken yeah, hostage and brainwashed uh, they were all in cages as well you know so and it was about rocky and the son um breaking in it was uh, a yeah, son it was a son wow. and it was about rocky and his son and it was about the villain was dr fry so it was uh but it was the same story that you yeah. it's the same plot you know it's like they got to break in and they're, they're all going to get turned into like tasty chicken nuggets it was a big factory. There was the whole heist thing, the planning, you know. But so it was all the more, key points were there. Yeah, same plot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just shifting it over to. In the end, what we did after a couple of years was shift to Ginger. We we had a good version. It was a good version. It was funny because Rocky's this sort of like he's kind of sort of like he's like egotistical father, you know. And his son was smarter than him, <laughs> and you know, and there was a lot of funny stuff. There was some kind of uh, subplot of like cockfighting, and Rocky was <laughs> ended up in the boxing ring with these sort of these tough roosters. I kind of love how he's—I don't want to say a bumbling fool, but he's kind of like this very sort of checked out, yeah, yeah kind of guy. Yeah. But I mean, he's still like a loving father. Yeah, it's such yeah. a sweet character. I think that's where the shift we made because I, I think there was a point where it was like you know I felt well a number of us felt in the end that it should be Ginger's story because. Because the first movie, so she's such a fantastic, strong female lead uh, hero, and it's a, such a female-centric movie. The first movie, and 
especially in these times, you know, you feel like that people are more waking up to, you know, female characters and, you know, the female side of storytelling. So we were like, well, we feel like we've missed something, you know, because like chicken, chicken Run in its heart, and it's always been trying to figure out what's the DNA of Chicken Run, what's what's important to maintain. And it did feel like it should be the next chapter of Ginger's story um, to to that would give us more depth. And I think it did in the end, you know, because then we gave her a daughter and now we have that story. And then we brought Miss Tweedy back because she's like Ginger's nemesis. Let's talk about this idea of her having this nemesis because I read somewhere that at some point you guys were going to have somebody else as the the villain, kind of like in a Bond movie where every every movie is different. So what what eventually led to that change? Well, I think it was all to do with that just shift into Ginger's story, you know, like getting into her head. And it was like, well, what's, you know, her deepest, darkest fear, you know, because you want your hero to have to overcome something within themselves, um, not just some external threat. Uh, And, you know, we were looking at, you know, strong female characters in the past, action movies, so Ripley, Mm. Ripley in Aliens. She's traumatized by her experience of the first film and she's haunted by it literally in her dreams. And so she's doesn't want to go back down to the planet on aliens and eventually eventually she has she has to go back down to kind of deal with not just the physical threat but her own kind of like fear you know so that it's just like that with ginger then it was like oh wow mrs tweedy there's there's something really something interesting there that that shadow that 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 internal kind of you know haunting you know uh, would really work, you know. So, and then also because we're shifting it into the '60s, and it's this kind of big factory building they've got to break into, and we, we're already like feeling like the dawn of the nugget is like a kind of Bond villains, <laughs> evil, you know, apocalyptic, you know, event work yeah. um, for world domination. I thought, oh, well, how great to take Mrs. Tweedy and like restyle her and give her that makeover and make <laughs> her into a bomb villain. And I'd started doing some drawings of her with a beehive and some oh, that's stronger awesome. eye makeup. And it was just like, she looks great. And she looks great in Mary Quant boots. And yeah, and there was an exhibition at the VNA of um, Mary Quant stuff. So, oh, that's awesome. And we went to there and it was just like, just imagine Mrs. Tweedy and all this gear. So it was just, you know, things all start falling into place, you know, like the look and the story and, you know, yeah. In the beginning, there was a, the the chickens were all in cages. When did you guys make that change to those collars? Because it adds this like subtext to the film as well. Yeah, well, it was, it was always this sort of notion that the brainwashing it was sort of relating to the 60s movies that there's a lot of brainwashing for some reason in 60s movies as the Stepford Wives. It's like this politics thing. Yeah, yeah, the Manchurian, the Ipcrest file, the Manchurian candidate. It was like an obsession. Um, So that's why it was... They were brainwashed in the cages. um, But um, really, as we were going forward, it was like... And I did some research. Obviously, we did some research on what is it like in these places and what that's going. What is that mm-hmm. going to look like? Mm-hmm. And it's horrible, to be honest. The truth of factory farming and mm-hmm. chickens is absolutely horrible, you know. And you don't really want to spend. It, we're going to be spending most of the movie in this place, and it just felt like it's just too grim, you know, and just too dark. 
And the first movie's quite dark in that way. You know, they're t- trapped in these carts and then they're in, yeah. in this yard and there's these fences and it's all of the sort of uh, iconography of a prisoner of war camp, yeah, you know, yeah, and it's yeah. quite heavy. But this was worse <laughs> and darker and more grim. So it just... So they're already looking for some... Trying to find some variety in there. Uh, and so we had ideas already of a of a of a of a you know an exercise area or a play area or somewhere where they would be let to run free a bit more, and then you know quite quickly it turned into like this idea of a Disneyland for chickens, and and it just rhymes again you know like it's, things come together because they rhyme well with other things yeah. and like the notion of um, food being sold as happy and colorful it really fits especially the early 60s america was arriving on the shores of dull post-war britain and a lot of like the color in advertising was uh, you know arriving there so you know colorful food packaging and stuff and also the notion of happiness i think is fit really well because ginger thinks she's found her happy ending right so the island in the way in her eyes is is a happy ending you know and a very happy place that they can be forever and of course the story is that's not true for ginger even though it's beautiful and it really is gorgeous and it's a paradise and it's kind of chicken wakanda we call it you know it's something not right for ginger in that because in the end ginger's happy ending is to be with her daughter and be going out into the world and like engaging with like all of the world's issues and that for her that's where her heart yeah. truly lies which is what she learns so she's living in a false happy ending and then it just f- felt like really apt to make the inside the funland farms to be a similar in a way a darker version you know like a place where everyone thinks they're happy forever and and then they, you know, they're just made to disappear up these stairs and they all think it's great. Like she's off on holiday. <laughs> so there's a kind of a satire, I guess, yeah. about... There's a little bit of a satire about consumerism, I guess, you know, and in, in that and the living in a world where everything seems happy and colourful and you don't really want to acknowledge any of the darker aspects of what goes on in the world which is kind of what ginger's doing at the beginning she's kind of like yeah she's in her own little yeah in her own little nice bubble yeah Yeah. and like doesn't really want to engage with the world so i think that speaks to a lot of us though right Mm. and i mean we where did production fall in with with covid and the shutdown were you guys already in production when the world shut down or yeah it kind of I feel like it happened twice I can't remember too well but we were definitely we were in storyboard and design and just as with everybody else it suddenly it was kind of growing across a couple of weeks the news you know we were like the news was from Italy it like looked bad and then we were everyone's wondering well what what's the government going to call and they were like you know, I remember going in the canteen, there's like these, there was a little where the tea area is, yes. and then there's like a little shared pot where they put the teaspoons, and I was like, I don't know, <laughs> I think we're all going to get COVID, because <laughs> we're all using that, we're all using that teaspoon. Well, anyway, suddenly, like for, every, as with everyone, suddenly it was like, right, we've got to get the hell out of here, mm-hmm. and everyone just rushed home and lashed up their computers and we could carry on working, because we were in story yeah, yeah. and design, and it was amazing how it didn't really affect us too much mm-hmm. um so we pressed on through our reels 
And then I guess we it must have opened up again because then we went to the studio. Then we were in the studio and they were building the sets and the sets were arriving. And we started shooting. Definitely, yeah, we were definitely shooting. Um, and the, but there were protocols, so everyone had the mask mm-hmm. and everyone. It wasn't as nice. Uh, stop motion is great because you can all gather around together and like all kind of work on stuff together and get close and look at things and you're inside the film literally surrounded by all the objects of the film but this was a little bit colder than that you know we'd have to stand back from each other and you know like fewer people in the spaces and and but we must have been shooting because I know because it's clay the faces are clay the animators and the puppet makers they all lick their fingers to smooth the clay so the whole puppet department got COVID in one day because it looked like because it just spreads, yeah. And then in animation, when an animator had finished animating a chicken, it was considered contaminated. So you couldn't so, use it anymore. No, the the puppet wrangler had to come in with a mask and gloves and take the take the chicken, like take Babs to the quarantine area. And there was a tent uh, with UV lights and shelves, and they were put on the shelves in the UV light for ten days in quarantine. <laughs> the so does that, does that mean that you guys had to have even more puppets than you usually? No, want? but well, they're hard to create quickly. So no, we had to just go slower. Because you can't, I mean, that's the thing about stop motion. You can't copy and paste things. You couldn't, like, just generate another 10 babs. It's like, I mean, they take three months to make one of those things. So it's like, no, we just had to go a lot slower, you know. The chickens were in quarantine. The chickens were in quarantine. Yeah, yeah, no, for real. They're contaminated chickens. Yeah. (laughs) It's so funny. I wish we'd kind of recorded it. I mean, we, you know, we were so frightened of... You know, dying well, <laughs> we no, didn't of course, yeah, but we didn't like see the we didn't see the funny side at the time i don't think well, other than the challenge of the fact that now you're moving at a much slower pace because of this issue i mean i, I assume at some point you do go back to some sort of normal but were there any other challenges um well the, there was the only other disaster really was the roof uh, broke and started leaking badly like because it, it was just, it's not a, it's like an old metal shed where they where they make the feature films. It's the same shed that they made the first film in. The sun got really hot in the summer and the roof buckled and split. All the seams split. And then like a month later, there was this deluge of rain for like three days of solid rain. And, and then the roof leaked so badly. Everyone was running around like covering sets in polythene. And they had to shut half the studio down uh, for like a... It's a couple of months while they're trying to fix the roof. <laughs> it's these all physical things of stop motion, you know, because you can't really, yeah, you need this dry space to make things. But um, but no, that was. But really, the the big thing was the um, just that original pitch. This time they're breaking in, you know, like it became apparent as we were going that. This time we were actually sending the chickens out into the land of the giants, whereas the first film they were confined in their huts for a lot of the film um, and their yard. And because it was, they didn't have the uh, capability then, they kept the humans and the chickens apart a lot of the time. And even when they're in the same scene, they're not in, they're very rarely in the same shot together, the chickens and the humans. But this, we realized because they're breaking into this giant building outdoors, and then even when they were indoors, they were going to be in these giant human rooms. It was like the land of the giants. So we were, it it was a big headache technically and um, production wise to kind of figure that out. Yeah, yeah. And in the end we had to shoot, 
for for a lot of shots we had to shoot two units so we'd have a chicken unit and a human scale unit and then we'd combine the two together in compositing later so yeah it was a very complex film to make actually were there any like surprises any accidents that actually turned out to be good things that happen i think there's stuff every day you know that's happening you know like that's the good thing as i say once you've set the kind of blueprint and people are working you know they've got the freedom to kind of try try things every day you know so like the way things are made and all of the figuring out the props story team are great you know they're always you know like coming up with bizarre ideas you know for like gags you know visual gags and um so I can't think of one in particular, but I would say it's like pretty much every day, you know, that there's something going on, yeah, either in story or even with the vo- the voice recording, you know, like someone like Bella Ramsey comes in and it's just going to be really fresh, you know, and a lot of the time, you know, you change the script on the day, you know, and, you know, Bella's so clever, you know, give you 15 different versions of a line, you know, that you didn't expect. Um, you know, Zach Levi's... He improvised most of his stuff in the end, really, because we'd written it, and but we're not American, and I mean, Kerry's American, and you know he'd um, done a lot of it, um, but even then, you know, Zach gets in the booth, and he's so quick, you know, and um, so it was fun to just let him just go, you know, and Nick and Fetch the Rats, we did them together, every they're the two that we always insisted on getting together. Because they play off of each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I've got enough stuff to make a half-hour film of Nick and Fetch, to be honest. That would be really funny. Coming, coming soon, really why funny. not? Yeah, yeah, it would be really funny, yeah. So how long was the production? I guess three years, three and a half, three and a half years probably with the COVID and the flooding delays. So, yeah, I mean, it was about three and a half years. I've been doing it for six Mm -hmm. so there was two and a half years of that story work and like shifting and finding the ginger story and kind of getting it all really right but I like I say I like to spend that time and make sure it is really right before you start because um don't like too many surprises in production to be honest so you have this finished movie you know it's good right but now you have to show it to people that have this affinity for the original because yeah, yeah. there's an entire fandom out there that's obsessed yeah. and it's their childhood. Can you talk about, you know, this? It's really uh, extraordinary, really, because, um, you know, I jumped in, as I say, because I just thought, what a delightful idea, chickens breaking in, you know, and then, you know, I love the characters and... But yes, as I've been making it, people have been coming up to me, all sorts of people coming up to me saying, you know, this was, this was my childhood, you know, almost teary, you know, and you're like, oh, I've, you know, I, I realized, you know, that there's a, people have a real ownership of the film, you know, and the characters and the world, you know, they, it's so close to their hearts. They, 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 there's a responsibility to them in a funny way. I've even had, like, I had a nine-year-old come up to me the other day and said, this was my childhood. And I'm like, but you are a child. <laughs> like, so it's got, it has a power, you know, it has gained some kind of 
foothold or deep in the culture, you know, in the cultural consciousness or whatever you want to call it. So, um, well, I think the story really helped. I mean, the fact that it was this female yeah, character, yeah, you know, that's definitely. To a lot there's of a there's a lot of people that you know really you know identify with her and that world, and you know, I, I, they didn't set out to make a feminist movie, to be honest, but I think they did. Yeah, you know, yeah, almost, sure. yeah. So, yeah, it has that. Sp- that and um, it's more relevant than ever probably I think this movie works on so many levels so I think you can watch it as a just a funny Saturday night action movie you know it's just got that appeal and I have consciously thought about all generations so I, I could call it a family movie you know like a true family movie but I'm kind of mean like that in the broadest sense, you know, like a multi-generational watch, you know, yeah. so like whatever your, fa- however your family works and, yeah, you know, right. but yeah, you can, so it's, there's something there for, there's a POV for kids to get into, there's a parent sort of at POV, there's, you know, the classic fans of Chicken Run access point, if you yeah. like, you know, so there's a lot of ways you can enjoy the movie and appreciate yeah. it. But I, my hope is that people even if they love the first movie as I do, they'll they'll keep an open mind and you know understand that this is a new chapter and that it's in some ways it's so many years later that it's going to be made for now uh, and that it will be a little different from the first movie too. But uh, we've we all of us have been very careful about figuring out the evolution from the first to this one, you know, and making it feel like a natural. Um, evolution to, to what it is now you know mm-hmm. uh, and um, so yeah I, 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 I think people will enjoy it well can you share your experience when you saw it with a crowd for the first time I was pleasantly surprised I have to say I mean I, I knew it was I like it I mean I, that's in the end that's all I can do is make something I really like um, with everybody. I mean, the whole crew love it, to be honest, you know, and the studio really like it and Netflix like it. So everyone that's worked on it like it. So we felt good, but I hadn't seen it with a big audience, really, because of COVID, because a lot of our reels were actually done in, you know, isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, and even once we started shooting, we didn't test it a lot. Actually, because it's hard to kind of change stop motion on the fly a lot of times, you know, so it's kind of like it can be very disruptive to be kind of changing your mind in production in any medium. But stop motion is especially hard, I think. So, yeah, I hadn't really seen it with a fresh bunch of people, a new audience. And uh, so we were lucky. We had uh, our premiere at the London Film Festival, 2000 seats, Royal Festival Hall. And um, even before it started, there was a buzz in the room, you know, like, and everyone was really excited about it. And uh, it played great, you know, and it was so, I really had a, it was such a good day and watching it. And it, people laughed in all the places I thought they would and then laughed in places that I forgot were funny because I'm kind of <laughs> bored of those jokes. And... Um, and no one got bored and people didn't fidget and walk off, you know, and all of those things that you kind of like terrified of actually happening, you know, because it's a lot, you know, it's a, to hold people's attention for 85 minutes is a trick, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and I was sitting next to my mum as well oh, through the whole amazing. thing, which is really brilliant, actually. Yeah, because I haven't seen her for some time. Yeah. So were you like sneaking looks at her to see if she was no, enjoying it? She was it? just holding my hand, oh. giving a little squeeze my hand every now and then. And oh, so it was so really sweet. like, yeah, it's like a... Uh, 
like a dream, you know, almost like a wedding day or something, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, that's amazing. Let's wrap up with a little bit of like a a, a bigger conversation about inspiration and mm. motivation, because mm. I mean, projects take so long to make, yeah. like six years for you on Chicken Run. Yeah. How do you stay motivated on a day to day basis and stay like organized and you know engaged with the work? There are many phases of this so it's not six years of like Mm -hmm. making ball bearings you know it's like you know there's the the initial excitement of Mm -hmm. the idea and you know and all of the kind of possibilities you know playing with with just ideas uh is like a couple of years you know and then once you've got that going then it's like starting to realize and make things you know then it's like the making of you know and making things and talking about color and light and the visual the visual interpretation of all of those ideas you've had you know and like the visual how to deliver it visually and in concept and then there's the actual kind of like the manufacturing and the making you know and so there are there are many different phases so it's not monotonous at all you know and um but it's a lot it is a long haul you know it is a long long haul and i and um the hard thing over that long period of time is to remember that it will fly by in 85 minutes in, to an audience and you want it to feel like it's just happening in front of their eyes like these characters are literally just making this stuff happen but it's not that at all because it's this you want it to feel like it's all spontaneous but as you're completely manufacturing that spontaneity <laughs> <laughs> over a long long period of time yeah, so that's funny it took a lot of planning yeah, yeah it's a lot of planning <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you feel like it's off the cuff you know and anything could happen and like this happens that happens you know and yeah, it's yeah. exciting you know so I think that is the really that's the real challenge and so the two things one thing is to remember the moments when you knew it was right you know because there's definitely times when you're when everything kind of clicks and even in your deep inside you you know that you got it right and that you're on the right path but over time you can sometimes waver or doubt and you have to fight that a little bit and just try and like hang on to those points where you're like no this is right you know, and even if people start questioning you, you have to think, you just have to remember that and you have to hold your line as well. Like, because I think there's a thing in animation, a lot of people talk about making it better all the time and failing and failing faster and changing and moving and, cha- and making it better and better and better. But I think you've also got to make sure you're not making it worse <laughs> and you're not ruining it <laughs> as you go, which is also which can also be done because the newest thing always seems to be the best thing and you get bored of something that's been sitting there a long time. So, yeah, it's knowing... Uh, and, but you know in your heart, I think you know in your heart when something's right and you've got to kind of stick with it and when people... Especially if a lot of people start doubting you, I think it's easy to um, lose your way. But then the other thing is to remember, as I said, what details are important, like what really matters. And often it's like the eyes of the character, you know, like the, the character's eyes in the shots. You know, it's like the, some to me, it's not the most important thing. You could almost make a movie just with eyeballs, actually, <laughs> to be honest. And just, emo- you know, with the emotion of the eye- yeah. eyeball. I don't know, there's things there's things that really matter and there's things that actually other people can take care of. And again, I've seen people get lost in details that don't matter and waste time 
and kind of like lose sight of what does matter. That's really important. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's true of any filmmaking, actually, you know, just as a director, you know, you're, you, you should be dealing with the important details, not all the details. What, what would be your one piece of advice to young filmmakers or young animators? I'd say keep it simple to start off with. Speaking to young directors here, I think, you know, like at the very beginning, don't, uh, you know, try something too big and complex. You know, get back to the basics, read fairy tales, look at myths from all cultures, you know, look at basic storytelling, you know, understand, you know, that, 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 that it's, it's thousands of years old, you know, it's in our culture, there's stories from all over the place and just read and look at a lot of those. Maybe figure out a story that you want to tell, but like a simple story that has a kind of a beginning, middle and end, you know, like this is really the, the I'm talking about beginners. Think of a simple, a simple tale, you know, like, I, like an example I gave the other day was like, you know, there's a dog. And every day she pees up against a tree. Then one day she goes to a tree, but someone's cut it down. So now she has to go find a new tree. So she goes on a journey to find a tree, you know, to find a new tree. Then, But she finds a forest. Start just a simple story. One character, give them a problem, send them, to, send them off on a journey to go and solve that problem. Write that down as like a fairy tale. Once upon a time there was a dog that did this, that did that, you know. And then... And then do a, find an image that represents each one of those beats. And then tell that story with your pictures to your friends or to a group of people. So you don't even need a camera or any technology. You can do that without anything, any bit of technology at all. Just literally human to human. Try that. See what makes them laugh. See, see where they get bored. Ask them what they thought. Go back and do another version, you know, improve it. And just do that a few times and you'll learn the art of visual storytelling very simply. And you, if you do that for six months and you do ten stories in six months like that, you'll learn so much about visual storytelling. More than if you try and open up Maya and teach yourself how to, you know, create a spaceship and, you know, or some explosion or something like that. You know, you you won't learn anything that way. I don't. I don't think. Yeah, yeah. So that's my thing. But and for animators, to say similar things. Keep it simple. Get a get an animation app on your phone. If you want to do stop motion, get an animation app on your phone. Find a tripod or somewhere to lock that. F lock your camera down. Make sure it doesn't tape it down so you don't knock it. <laughs> and then just get a piece of clay. You know, and just move a piece of clay around in front of the. You know frame at a time and just try and make it see if you can get that clay to feel like it's got a life inside it uh, so simple yeah keep it simple and that was our conversation with director sam fell you can watch his latest feature film chicken run dawn of the nugget now streaming on netflix the sparkcast is a production of the spark computer graphics society opening and closing credits by michael edlin Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.